Hello, and welcome to the Double Take Podcast with your hosts, Kirk and Kevin Weber. This is the show for fans of sports, music, and popular culture. On this episode of Double Take, we discuss the Apple Hall of Fame card set, the Beatles' A Hard Day's Night album, and the Mount Rushmore of the Boston Celtics. Join us now on Double Take. All right, welcome to episode 14 of Double Take. I'm Kirk Weber, along with my co-host, Kevin Weber, and we'd like to thank you for joining us again. If uh, this is your first time, thank you for checking us out. It's an exciting day. Uh, The results of the modern era ballot for the Hall of Fame will be announced. This is Sunday, uh, December 8th, uh, which for us um, is tonight because, you know, we haven't heard yet. We would have liked to work something into the show, but that gets it kind of going kind of late if we want to have something available by Monday. Um, We truly hope to see Lou Whitaker, along with the three other people we talked about, Marvin Miller, Dwight Evans, and Ted Simmons, uh, join him in the Hall of Fame. Don't know if they're going to have four people or not, but uh, if they have four, those would be the ones that we talked about. Um, We'd be on cloud nine if Whitaker finally made it. Um, In case you don't know, uh, we discussed the modern era ballot on our 10th episode titled Hold On. So please feel free to visit or revisit that episode if you're waiting around. Uh, unfortunately, you know, because of those time constraints, uh, we're not able to really discuss the modern era ballot until probably our next episode, which I'm sure we'll get into. However, with the Hall of Fame kind of on our mind, um, let's frame our APA talk for this episode around that. And the topic for this episode is the APA Hall of Fame set of cards. And for those of you not familiar... Uh, the basic info is it's a 345-card set um, for Apple Baseball, and it includes all Hall of Famer player cards in addition to players that may or may not join the Hall, like there's a like a Bonds card, for example. Um, they have normalized the stats for this set, and that's something that we want to talk about in a second. Uh, it includes position ratings for the outfield, so like you know, it's not just outfield three; it'd be like right fielder three or something like that, as well as master symbols and stuff. And it goes for forty-two dollars on the Epa Store. Um, so, Kevin, I I know you used to own this set, and then yes. you sold it. Uh, let's talk about what you think is good and bad about it, and maybe why you decided to unload it too, because that's not something that everybody always does too. So, what are your yes. thoughts? Well, when this set was first talked about, I was very excited about it, and um, there wasn't a whole lot of info, and there still hasn't really been a whole lot of information about what this normalized structure is or how they came up with these particular cards. So I got it. I love the way the cards look. I love the way they have, like, when they got in the Hall of Fame and the years that they played. There's some really quirky cards that are kind of fun, but the big thing was... I didn't understand what they were going to do. You know, these, the cards didn't make any sense to me. And I started, the more I thought about it, I was like, I'm never going to play with these cards. I'd rather just have some other set that I know I'm going to use if I'm going to do something APA related. You know, like, you know, I'd rather have the 1935 set or something like that. So I decided to sell it on eBay and get that money. And I bought, I can't remember exactly what it was. It might have been the 35 set. I bought something else. Um, so you have, like, we were looking at some photos of some of the cards and stuff, and some of the things are kind of weird. Like, for example, 
uh, the Cap Anson card, you know, he played, mm-hmm. of course, from 1871 to 1897, got in the hall in 1939, and he's got um, an 11-4, 33-6, 66-1, and he's got 7s on 22 and 44, and he's got a 45 asterisk. That does not look like Camp Anson's card to me. And if I'm playing with that card, and or if I'm playing against somebody's playing with that card, and they roll a 66-1 and he hits a home run, I'm going to be like, what the heck? You know, because that's yep. the kind of card that looks like somebody should hit 285 with 25 home runs. And that's a joke. I don't understand what that is. I know they're trying to make them all kind of interrelated, I guess. I, I, I kind of I can appreciate that. But to me, it, it makes no sense because one of the reasons why you like to play APA is to see if certain things happen the way that they did in the season. It doesn't mean you want them to, but you know the card can produce it. So if you're going to play with um, Roger Maris's card from 61 to see if he breaks the record, you know that card is capable of doing it. Whether or not it does it, you, you, it's not like everybody says, well, hey, you didn't break it, so this card's crap, you know, that kind of thing. That's not the idea, but you know it's possible. I don't know what is possible with any of these cards if it's performing the way it should or shouldn't. And all those unknowns made me not really like the set. I just didn't understand where it is not grounded in anything. Right. That's because my main reason. Usually the idea is that the cards are able to replicate uh, something. In, in in all cases, it's basically a season. All right. And um, so I understand that they want to have something that replicates their career. And I would like to see a career card but to me, and it doesn't have to be that complicated, you take the average that they have for a season, uh, like let's say it's a 162-game season or 154, whatever it is, and you know they averaged 28 home runs a year, let's say, and they hit 272 for their career. Well, then you make a card based on that. I mean, that's what you need to do. Because yeah. when you look at Roger Marish's card, for example, in this, and it's great that he's in there. He's, you know, he played from 1957 to 68. He's got, you know, when I say this, you know, this is the 113366, right? He's got, he goes 141, and then he has a 5 on 22, right? Roger Maris's career was not him having two ones on his car. Mm-hmm. He had a few years where he really did hit Maybe a lot of home runs. Three or four. Maybe three or four. But that is not... Like if you, because, and I've talked about this in the past with APA, I think APA is a great way to learn about Hall of Famers and what was this player like when they played? Well, that is not what Roger Maris was like. No, no offense to Roger Maris, but like we were talking about the Brooks Robinson card. Brooks Robinson goes four, six, one. He has a one on 66. Brooks Robinson had a few years where he hit some home runs, but his overall card would not look like that. You can give him the third baseman six if you want, because the impression is he was a great fielder. I know people kind of fade when they get towards the end of their career, but that is not what Brooks Robinson was. Um, So I I think that that is probably what your problem was. And what I think, I mean, would you consider these kind of a flop? I would think that maybe didn't sell as much as they maybe wanted them to, you know? Um, Right. But I don't know for sure. I mean, I I guess we'd have to ask somebody (laughs) and then know about that. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I know that, like, for example, Brooks Robinson, he played in an era when it was tough to be a hitter. It was hard to be a hitter. If he played yep. in the more in the in the seventies and eighties, he would have had a little bit better numbers. That's the way it goes, you know. Cap Anson played in a time when people didn't ho- hit home runs, but Cap Anson didn't hit home runs, so he's not supposed to do that, you know. So I, I just want a card that, in some way or another, is quantitative in the way it represents the player, and I I just don't know. Now, uh, you know, I I had heard people trying to ask 
um, about how they figured out these cards, and I never heard a very good answer. Um, and so maybe that was part of the problem. If people understood how they came up with, you know, what they did here, then maybe um, they would like it more. I know there's some guys who do like it. I see, like, on Facebook, um, the app of pages and different things that people have this set and they play different things with it and they like it, which is fine. But, um, like, if I was going to play the an all-time great series, like, let's say, you know, the Tigers and the Yankees or something, I would want the cards I'm using to represent something like their whole career or something like that rather than just kind of, I don't know, maybe maybe it's kind of like a, um, a War 7 kind of thing. That's what they're looking at. I, I don't know. But, th- but then again, it's never really been explained, so that's part of the problem, you know. Right. Like, I went and went to the Apple Card Generator. Uh, Steve's, isn't it? Steve's Apple Card Generator. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I crunched numbers, and I made some cards um, that I could share on our on our page and stuff. But, like, if you looked at Babe Ruth, like, I think Babe Ruth's career card would be uh, uh, right, just not fast, but regular outfielder two. He would be an A pitcher with an RZZ, all right? And then he would go 141 across 11, 33, 66, and then on 22, a 5, on 44, a 6, and a 10 on 15, all right? That would that would play like what Babe Ruth was like and seven walks. Yeah, <laughs> seven and yep, yeah, yep, yeah, and seven walks. And a few strikeouts here, that would be Babe Ruth. And mm-hmm. you could use him for that. Now, is it a little weird that he'd be a pitcher and all that? Yeah, but he, you know, during his pitching days was phenomenal. So you would have that. He doesn't strike out a lot of guys, but he has control, you know, that sort of thing. Um, if you looked at like uh, Mickey Mantle or, you know, Mickey Mantle didn't have a really high lifetime batting average, it was like 267. But he did, he would have on that, you know, if you did it, three fives, right? Five, five, one, and a five on 22, and a 10 on 15. And then you're really not getting any other sevens and stuff. You get a lot of eights and nines, right? But six, six 14s. Yeah, but he walks a lot, right? He gets Willie, on base a lot. Yeah. Willie Mays would have an 11 on 15, and he would go four, five, five, one, right? You know, basically it's what he would have. Um, that would play like what they would have been in the ups and the downs of their career and give you Mm -hmm. a feel for what that person, if you were watching that person through their career, what they would be like, you know, like if you were Mm -hmm. a fan of like, let's say it was, you know, in our area, Michigan, Al Kaline, what would Al Kaline be like? I, my, my, one of my all time favorite players, of course, it's Johnny Bench and Johnny Bench would be like a five, six, one with a seven on 22. He'd have a 10 on 15 because through the first part of his career, he actually was a pretty decent base stealer. Um, but he doesn't hit for a super high average, but he has tremendous power, right? As a catcher mm-hmm. and you'd make him a catcher nine or whatever. Right. Um, so, you know, like I think with the speed and the fielding, you have to kind of go with the overall kind of idea, but you could easily make the hitting part of the card reflective of what their average season was like. And that would be fun to deal with because then it could be educational in my yeah. opinion. Well, like for example, I'm just thinking here and I haven't seen it. I have no idea what it would be, but if you did the career card of Derek Jeter and Alan Trammell, mm-hmm. I think they would be very, very similar cards and Trammell could be a little bit better. He'd probably be a right. shortstop nine where Jeter would be an eight. Um, but yeah, and so it's you know all the numbers that get wrapped around like oh this guy had three thousand hits and this guy had six hundred home runs and all that kind of stuff. I think it kind of shows like this is the overall kind of player they were, and it also includes like their bad years. I mean that that mm-hmm. brings them down a little bit. So yeah, I think that that would be. Um, I like that it's grounded in something that you kind of know what it is. 
Yes. Right, and it would be an interesting way, again, educationally, to compare the players. Now, I know that we're talking the major leagues. It's harder with the Negro Leagues. And like when I've looked at some of the Negro League cards, like Satchel Page is like a B pitcher sometimes on there. I'm like, he shouldn't be. Just make him an A. Like his reputation, I know you don't have the same thing. Make him an A pitcher, please. Right? So that we can just have, if Satchel Page is pitching for me, I want him to be an A. Right now, I mean, yeah. I know that it's harder. I mean, you, the Negro League ones are really cool, like because you'll get a guy like Oscar Charleston or something, and he has all sorts of positions he plays and all that sort of thing. But those are going to be harder because, again, that normalized idea that they went with probably has to be something that they work in more with that. And I think that that was maybe influential on how these cards came out. But I just yeah. don't find them all that great. Yeah. Uh, well, I remember the pitching grades were just all over i didn't understand where they were and i think that the pitching is really hard to do the pitching um, is hard you know, yeah mm-hmm. yeah the pitching is very difficult to try to figure out how you're going to how you're going to grade guys because you can't give everybody an a you know right i mean it's like what they're in the hall of fame so they get an a i mean i don't know I mean, right you i would that. say that if you made career cards it's really only works for hitters like mm-hmm. i don't think it works for pitchers um, the only way you could work with pitchers is if you took the average of their, of so many years, right? Like they're, you know, you do that with a lot of saber ma- metrics where you're able to kind of average out like your best seven years or something like that. And you could do that, but, um, it would be hard to be an A all the time. Well, you know, yeah, you'd have to, you'd have to almost do it over their whole career. What was the average earn run average during their time? And then kind of base it off of that. I, I, I don't know. It'd be trickier. No doubt it's right. trickier. And and I could appreciate that. You know, that part. It's when you see some of these hitter hitter cards that you're just really baffled by what that is. Um, so, you know, it's interesting. You know, it's still fun. And we're not trying to be mean or anything. Um, but it it just wasn't quite what you hoped for. Right. No. Yeah. It was um, a bit disappointing. That's I would love to yeah. play with some cards where I'm playing with younger people or people that are learning more about the game and they get a feel for what a player was like based on their career card. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be, that would be fun. Right. Yes. And, and you or could a still tournament with those kind of players too, or like a league, you know, something right. like that. Yeah. That'd be interesting. Yeah. So, you know, because, you know, if they had really good years and really bad years, then it should average out. That's the idea, right? You know, mm, yep. so if you're a career 342 hitter like Babe Ruth, right, um, your card's going to be better, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, you had some of the best individual seasons of all time, but you're also your career card should be there, you know? Um, so, you know, it just depends. And if you played forever, you know, um, and got over 4,000 hits like Pete Rose, but your career card's not going to look as good as the career card of Ty Cobb. Right. And, and that's the idea. And, you know, I made a Ty Cobb career card and there's a couple ways it could go, but, but basically, I mean, he would have four zeros, two 11s and, um, a seven, right? Basically that's what he would have. Along with, you know, some walks and stuff. He also would have, you know, all the eights and nines and so forth. And it would be a really good card, you know. Um, so, you know, I mean, that's kind of the idea. I mean, he'd hit about, I don't know, hopefully 370 for you. <laughs> that's the yep. idea. Oh, yep, yep. Um, so, anyway, interesting thing. That's kind of our thing. We're, we're looking forward to uh, hearing about Hall of Fame stuff uh, soon um, here on Sunday. And uh, hopefully it's good news. I hope they go with four guys uh, because yeah, I have a feeling it won't be four. But you know, me too. I, yeah, yeah. 
but um, and I really hope Lou Whitaker is one of them. So we'll yes. talk about that, and um, then we'll we'll break down kind of those ideas and maybe do some comparison stuff. Uh, I assume that at least one person in in the, the writers' uh, vote will be Derek Jeter for the hall. So um, you yes. know whoever's here along with Derek Jeter and maybe a few others, you know, kind of in there. Um, so we'll see how that goes. So when we come back, we have a couple other things that we'll continue with. We, we're going to do some Beatle talk and our next album to talk about is a hard day's night. And we also want to do another Mount Rushmore and we're going to pick an NBA team. Uh, and the plan is to talk about the Boston Celtics. So those are coming up after this, uh, brief, uh, break here. Okay, well, welcome back. Um, we're going to talk some about uh, the Beatles, and uh, we've been going through each of their albums, the UK-released albums. And uh, next on tap is A Hard Day's Night, the soundtrack for their first movie. It was released in July of 1964, their third album in basically 18 months, um, and coincided with the cinema opening of their first movie. So um, this was, a, a you know, uh, the first time that the band, basically all the songs were Lennon-McCartney uh, songs. They didn't do any cover versions or anything like that. And that is kind of unique in its own way, too. Um, so um, what's your initial thoughts as we kind of jump into A Hard Day's Night, Kevin? Well, I've been, um, I think we should try to look at these albums side by side. You know, I've been um, getting into more of vinyl lately and purchasing some Beatles vinyl. So um, I think that might be a, a way to kind of look at it as well. So um, on the first side, we've got A Hard Day's Night, I Should Have Known Better, If I Fell, I'm Happy Ditches Dance With You, and and I Love Her. And uh, see here, what else we got? That's oh, Tell Me Why and Can't Buy Me Love, I Tell think. Me Why and Yeah, love. so that, you know, and it is interesting how they kind of set up these different, you know, sides and stuff to see what they're doing here. So... Um, you know, opening chords of a hard day's night with the 12 string. There's nothing more iconic. I think it might be the most iconic thing uh, the Beatles have, you know, I mean, it's definitely, they have several really iconic sounds, but you hear that opening strum of the, of the 12 string, you, you know exactly what it is, you know? Yep. Um, and it definitely captures Beatlemania, uh, very, very well. And, um, you know, has that excitement and that drive still. I mean, even though this is 64 and they're kind of getting into the height of all the Beatlemania stuff, um, you definitely can uh, see them trying to, you know, still reach for the top. They still haven't got there yet. So, um, but I love Hard Day's Night. Um, other songs on here that, like, I always like to look at songs that could be singles. You know, like If I Fell. If I Fell could have been a great single. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and I Love Her. Was that a B-side on something? I don't remember if it was or not. I don't think it was, but though it, I know certainly, that... They use things we said today a lot in concert. They like yes. to try to work that one in, which was an interesting one to choose, but they did. Mm -hmm. um, I think that uh, You Can't Do That is a very fun song. They're all yeah, very quick, too. Nothing's yeah. over three minutes long. Um, you know, everything's a little over two for the most part. A couple of them are even under two. Like, you know, Harrison's song, I'm Happy Just to Dance With You, is only a minute 56. So it's yes. like 
uh, very quick. I think the longest song is like two minutes and 43 seconds. That's it. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you just kind of, you go about 16 minutes on that first side and a little over 13 minutes on the second side. And it's kind of like a concert almost in its own way. So yeah, they are, they're like two sets. Like you got a little intermission and then you got, um, you know, start out with any time at all. And, and then, you know, I'll cry instead. Things we said today, when I get home, you can't do that, which is one of my, it really is one of my all time favorite Beatles songs. Definitely like a, a deep, deep cut kind of song that, yeah. you know, it's just rocks. It's got the great cowbell going on there. You know, mm-hmm. it's just a you know, great guitar work. I think it's a great song. I'll Be Back's a good song to end the album, but I think they maybe could have ended it with You Can't Do That. But, uh, you know, I'm not going to question the Beatles too much, I guess. Right. But, uh, so this is also, um, you know, the when they released this, things were starting to really pick up in the United States. And there was the anticipation for this album, you know, on both sides of the of the ocean there. And by the time, basically, um, they, their popularity, you know, by the first week of April of 64, they, they famously held the top five positions in the billboard charts. And then like they had another seven titles in the hot 100. Um, and so they, this is Beatlemania at its, at it, at its, you know, height, as far as, you know, everything just kind of being dominated on the airwaves through Beatles songs. Um, and I, you know, for me, I, um, I enjoy it. I mean, I, I think a hard day's night, you know, it's hard to talk about the album without talking a little bit about the movie. It's a classic. It, uh, the beauty of a hard day's night is a movie. And that's where all the songs are is it's just so young and youthful. You know, you get the, like, if you don't get the Beatles, if you watch that with this, an open mind, you, uh, you feel what, um, what it was, what was happening. Um, so it's great that they have, you know, um, you know, the ability to have, you know, the remastered versions of A Hard Day's Night as a movie as well. You know, the great Richard Lester film. Um, yes. So uh, do you have this one on vinyl right now? Um, I don't, but I have it coming. Uh, I, you know, it, it's it's going to be coming in a couple of days. I was looking here. Um, things we said today was the B-side to uh, A Hard Day's Night. So okay. that's probably why they... You know, because people are flipping that over and listening to that song. And then, of course, Can't Buy Me Love, which was one of the, you know, best pre-sale singles of all time. Um, the B-side to that was You Can't Do That, which is, that's a great single. <laughs> you know, so. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was different so. in the U.S. In the U.S., it was a different album. You know, they, uh, yeah. you know, they were going with the soundtrack, you know, with it. And then they had some of the George Martin Orchestra stuff on it, too. Um, which has got to be disappointing, yeah. but but they also uh, use some of the um, some of the older songs like um, "I Want to Be Your Man" and "Don't Bother Me" and "All My Loving" and "She Loves You" and stuff. Um, you know, those were um, kind of you know they, they kind of considered some of those for the you know the, the the American audience was trying to you know the, the American you know capital was trying to get some of the other songs on there as well. So in the orchestra stuff, I have a, I have a copy of that the vinyl, but I haven't listened to that in a while. So. So, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, of course, people were more in tune with that. Like, they weren't, nowadays, you you get something released like that. You feel like you're getting ripped off. But, um, you know, back back in the 60s, it would have been like, okay, fine, whatever. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, uh, fun album. Um, you know, it's not one where you start talking about the legendary Beatle albums as, you know, oh, a Hard Day's Night or something. I think sometimes it gets a little bit of a bad reputation just because they was 
part of this movie, but there were some great songs on it. Oh, and it's a it, fun album to listen to anytime yeah. you, you get a chance with it. Yeah. So, you know, I uh, I enjoy it still, and I listened to it before we were going to talk about it, and uh, it just it moves really well. It's got a lot of energy, and that's the whole essence of A Hard Day's Night is kind of the energy of Beatlemania because this release by that time is when they start hitting all the other markets around the world, you know, New Zealand or the Netherlands or Denmark or you know, Australia or Hong Kong or something, they, you know, they're not just big in the, in the UK and the US by this point, they're world phenoms now. Um, mm-hmm. And A Hard Day's Night is really kind of that arrival moment, uh, you know, in, in, the, in their history. Um, so what do you think of the top, let's say, three songs on this album, in your opinion? Um, well, Hard Day's Night, I think for yep, sure, I would, agree, be, for sure. would be one. Um, Can't Buy Me Love might be number one, really. Yeah, yeah Can't Buy Me song. Love and A Hard Day's Night are there. Probably Can't Buy Me Love is one, and Hard Day's Night is two. And then... If you're you know, not a big Beatles fan, then you probably would say And I Love Her, which is a great song and the great little you know, little right. lick that George Harrison added to that song. Um, so that's good, but You Can't Do That's an awesome song. I would yeah. probably go with You Can't Do That because I, I, I mean, kind of like, tend to like are the you like me? Yeah, if you're in the car and you're listening to the radio and you can't do that comes on, do you automatically turn it up? <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah. probably without yeah. even thinking. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I yeah. would say that that would be my sleeper one on that. Um, yeah. So good stuff. Of course, there's another album that comes out in 1964 uh, that we'll talk about on our next episode, um, and kind of then we start getting into kind of an interesting era by 65 and 66, but. Um, you know, Beatles uh, for Sale is kind of um, when all this starts to become maybe too much, <laughs> you yeah. know. Um, have so, to, had to the, resort to some cover versions and they're getting a little worn out, but it's still a, a quality album. There's still a lot of fun things on it. So, yeah, we yeah. can talk about that next time. Yeah. And, um, and any other Beatle commentary you got? I, um, you know, we, we can kind of wrap this one up and keep going. I know that um, that's kind of a ongoing part or, you know, segment of our show, but um, I think that, uh, you know, I want to uh, get into maybe in a couple other uh, episodes, a little bit about some recent Beatle books and stuff like that and things that I okay. find interesting. Um, I'm also curious, um, something I've been reading, um, talking about the difference um, between the stereo and mono versions of Sgt. Pepper and um yeah. and how the mono really pops a lot more so um you know you may have that on vinyl perhaps i'm not sure i um, have the the new remastered one from 2017 on vinyl okay and i do have an old version i don't know if it's i don't know if it's mono I, stereo. I, I if you're able to kind of uh research the mono comparison i'd be curious to hear your thoughts down the line when we get to that well that's the way that they mixed that album anyway i mean they they want they they mixed it for mono and then you know stereo was an afterthought so um yeah that's that was the version that they were working for for sure right so yeah i mean just kind of get prepared for that and we can uh kind of you know talk about that down the line a couple more episodes Okay. okay yep all right we'll be right back Okay, well, welcome back. If you'd like to follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, it's at Double Take Cast. 
And um, you can email us at doubletakefeedback at gmail.com, or you can leave us a voice message on anchor.fm. So, Kevin, um, time for a Mount Rushmore. That's right. We said last episode that we would like to do something non-baseball, though I could do baseball every time. And so what we're going to do this time is the Mount Rushmore of the Boston Celtics of the NBA. Yes. So um, you did some of your research. I did some of mine. Uh, hopefully we don't offend any big Boston Celtics fans. I'm um, sure we will. <laughs> we probably will. But this is from an outsider's perspective, let's say. Yes. Right? Which I think is always interesting if you're a fan of some team. Right. See what other people think, you know. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm sure they have all their insights and stuff. But that's fine. So um, here are some of the possible people that I think we should consider. Okay. And you tell me if you have any people besides the ones that I'll mention. Bill okay. Russell, Bill Russell, Larry Bird, John Havlicek, Bob Cousy, um, Dave Cowens, Kevin McHale, Robert Parrish, Sam Jones, Paul Pierce, JoJo White, Ray Allen, Dennis Johnson, and Tom Heinsohn. Uh, those are the ones that I was looking at. Did you have some that you were looking at? That weren't those guys? Um, Dennis Johnson. Oh, I, I said Dennis it, Johnson. Yeah. Oh, you did? Okay. Yep. yep. Um, mm-hmm. um, let's see here. Danny Ainge. I did not have Danny Ainge on there. Uh, Kevin Garnett. I did not. No. And mainly because I didn't put Garnett on there because he played not as long a career in Boston. I mean, he was there when they had some massive success, but, you know, he's in Minnesota and things like that. So I don't think of him as much of a boston celtic as as others well um, he's the number one guy on my no i'm just kidding he wasn't yeah <laughs> uh ray john rondo i had him on there too i i can see where rondo would be in there and i thought about him but I, then when i looked at a couple of the other people that are similar position you know point guard um i figured no but but rondo was um it has been was a very successful player for their franchise yes um did you have Nate Archibald on there? I didn't. No. I should have had him, but I didn't. Uh, Tiny Archibald, right? I don't know yes. how long he played for Boston. I know he played in some other places, too, and this is kind of some of our lack of Boston knowledge, probably. Yeah, but, yeah. I, um, I don't know. You'll notice but, our basketball knowledge is not just as off-the-cuff as our baseball knowledge, for right. sure. I mean, we do all right, but we grew up in the '80s watching the NBA, and we were Pistons fans, bad boy Piston fans, and so right. we know all those guys. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. You know, it, it, it's it's hit and miss for sure. Right. I um, I, let's try and see if we can do our top two. Or okay. Do two. Like, do who are your top two? Well, um, Bill Russell and Larry Bird. Those, those are, are my top two as well. Guy, um, two guys that got to be on there. Bill Russell yeah. is like the poster child for sports success, right? I mean, he's the guy that, you know, he won all these championships. Um, he, you know, 11 NBA titles, five MVPs, right? Um, he averaged like, you know, 15 points a game, but he averaged 22 and a half rebounds a game. And they don't, they didn't keep track of block shots back in like the 50s, 60s era. So we really don't know. He probably would have had a huge record there too. And I'm always impressed because I teach about, you know, sports stuff in my pop culture class in high school that I teach. And he, in the um, night, game seven of the 1962 finals, he um, he scored 30 points. You're like, oh, big deal. And he had 40 rebounds. That's 4-0. 40. 
in game seven. Yeah. Right. Um, so like he would come up big when he needed to come up big. So to me, he is definitely probably the number one guy. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then with Larry Bird and Ken, we grew up watching Larry Bird. I mean, Larry Bird is not just one of the best Boston Celtics. He is one of the best players in the history of the game. All right. So he'd have to be one of the four. Um, and you know, he won, what was it? Three NBA titles, Yep. Uh, two finals MVPs, three MVPs, 12-time All-Star, nine, nine-time NBA All-First Team, Rookie of the Year in 1980, um, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, for sure. I mean, he averaged 24 points a game in his career, right, and like 10 yep. rebounds or something. Like, he was and how he helped redefine the NBA, him and Magic Johnson, too. You know I mean? So yep. that, that's got to—I mean, he is one of the— um, preeminent players of all time in the NBA for sure and could do everything I mean he wasn't like this gifted athlete or something but I tell you man I mean Bird was everywhere always making plays never really screwing anything up he was tough as nails man because mm-hmm. the NBA in the in the 80s was tough man they knock you on your butt all the time and stuff so I mean we got to see him play quite a bit because he was on TV I think one time we even got to see him play at the Pontiac Silverdome. Yes, we right. did. Yep. But, um, you know, Bird was a great player. Annoying to have playing against your team, but a tremendous, tremendous player. I mean, one of the, you know, one of the best basketball players I've ever seen for sure. You know? Oh, yeah. And he was kind of like a point forward before there was such a thing um, because yeah. he was six nine, but he w- could handle the ball and run uh, the offense at times. And, you know, so he was he was special. Um, so those are our top two solid defensively. Yeah. Yep. Yep. He was, you know, just KG kind of, you know, able to just, he was always in the right spot all the time. It seems like, um, and then I think the number three is a pretty obvious one. I don't know if you do, but I think it should be John Havlicek. Yeah, Um, I agree. He was on eight NBA championship teams, which when we're talking the NBA, how many championships you win is a big deal. Like how many teams you're on and stuff. Now they have the most ever. So that makes it easy for them. That's why they have so many guys in the Hall of Fame, too. Um, he, he was a 13-time All-Star, right? Um, and, you know, the whole Havlicek stole the ball thing in 65 and all that stuff. But he spent all 16 of his years in Boston. Um, he was a finals MVP. Um, he was, you know, all-NBA, first team four times. Um, he was a great player i guess he was a really good athlete too he um was drafted he could have been like a wide receiver in pro football mm-hmm. but he played yeah, basketball. Guy, yep. so um real gutty guy kind of epitomized what the boston celtics were about when they were in you know their great glory years so i would say he would be my three now would you agree with that or no or do you have a, an opinion on that i would or? agree with those first three yeah okay now yep. the four i think is debatable it, only because there mm-hmm. are so many options, like we mentioned earlier on this segment. Um, you mm-hmm. know, there, it matters which way you want to go. Um, and I'm going to kind of let you throw out your suggestion. We could talk about a few options and maybe decide what they are since we're going to make our little uh, picture of the four guys and put it on yes. social well, media. Well, my <laughs> number four guy, only because I got to see him play as well, is, is Kevin McHale. Um, okay. I, I thought that, uh, you know, and I guess if you're making uh, this team up there, you got to kind of a center power forward, another power forward, um, kind of a, you could even have shooting, go- <laughs> it'd be a pretty good team, and then Havlicek in there. But he was just an unstoppable post player, really tough. I, I felt like whenever I watched Mikhail play, he was um, making some kind of post move and getting fouled and getting hammered and making the basket. 
Right. I mean, that's well, what, and he was like unstoppable. He had like every move that, that was ever created down in the post. Right. A lot of people know? consider him maybe, the, you know, it's arguable, but the best post player in the in the history of pro basketball. I don't know. That's one I ever saw. But he that. was something else. I didn't put him at four. I really thought about it. I went with Bob Cousy. And I know okay. that might seem kind of weird to some people because you could, there's all those others that you could talk about. Like Dave Cowens would be a really good guy too. Or even mm-hmm. Paul Pierce, he played forever for them. But Kuzi yeah. um, redefined kind of point guard. Um, and when they first started really um, winning their championships, he was the guy, right? And he was really flashy and fun at a time. He was kind of like the Steve Nash of his era, right? Um, and he was a 13-time All-Star uh, ten time um all NBA first team, six and and you know, NBA titles. Um he averaged eighteen points a game and like seven point six assists. He didn't have he wasn't a great shooter, but he was a great guy on the fast break. What they would do is they would get out and he would just blow it down the the court and find guys and they, they that's how they that's how they won all the time. Um, mm-hmm. he always had all those behind the back passes and cool things. There's some cool highlights of him. If you look him up on YouTube and stuff. And I just feel like as a, from a point guard floor general sort of thing, I chose Koozie, but I totally can see where Mikhail probably is a even better talent. Um, yeah. I don't know. I just wanted to go with a different guy. I don't know. Well, he kind of represents, you know, um, the earlier era and then yeah. you have Havlicek you know, kind of, well, then you have Bill Russell, kind of that next era, and then he gets... Havlicek he, is more kind of Havlicek late 60s into the 70s. 70s. And then you get, you know, late, late 70s, 80s, you know... Larry Bird. Bird. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that kind of represents the... Because, you know, the, really the NBA has only been going around since the mid... You know, just after the Second World War, you know. Right. And, hasn't, and I was kind of thinking that, where you kind of get... There's a little bit of crossover with Kuzi... Russell and then Havlicek, but uh, Havlicek never played with Bird. And you know, he retired, I think, in '77, and Bird came in in '79. But, uh, but yeah, you know, the, trying to kind of get a blend there. I mean, there's, there's um, plenty of other guys that had great careers that you could put in there. Even Ray Allen, who I think is was a like he, he. The problem with Allen is he left before the end. He didn't finish his career as a uh, Celtic and went to like Miami. And I think some people get bitter about that, but Boston people would know that more than us. Um, So those would, you know, be the guys. Do you feel like we should go with um, Kuzi or with Mikhail? I'm fine with going with Kuzi. I like the representing the different eras. Okay. I think if I were, if I was going to be drafting an NBA team, I probably would pick Mikhail first. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. But, uh, I get you. Yeah. You know. yeah. All right. Well, that's cool. So we'll go with Bill Russell and Bob Cousy and John Havlicek and Larry Bird for our vote on the Mount Rushmore of the Boston Celtics. And okay. next week, we'll pick another team and see if you have any suggestions. Send us some feedback on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at uh, Double Take Cast or email us at doubletakefeedback at gmail.com and let us know or leave a voicemail at anchor.fm and we'll. Uh, we'll do it. If you, if you did that, we would do it. Why not? Yes. Right. You know, yes. we're just kind of, kind of just kind of picking them. So that's kind of where we would be at. So, um, thank you for listening to our episode. This is kind of, kind of going to be the last little segment we'll have. I hope everybody kind of can get to the end and, 
uh, here are a few of our kind of work, you know, our f finishing credits and stuff like that. But if you can't and you don't have time, we understand. Um, but um, until next episode, which hopefully we'll be talking about Lou Whitaker in the Hall of Fame, uh, we thank you for listening and, um, you know, take care. Double Take is recorded using Audacity and CleanFeed. We use Fifine USB microphones and distribute through Anchor.fm. Theme music, Funk in the Trunk, is by Shane Ivers at SilvermanSound.com. Please follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at DoubleTakeCast, or email us at DoubleTakeFeedback at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.